Welcome to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill, and I'll be leading you on this adventure. We'll be getting into deep discussions about classic records, profiles on up-and-coming bands, and interviews with your favorite artists. You can check out new episodes every week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. This week we have Chris Alfano and Matt Lupo of the band East of the Wall, based out of central New Jersey. They have a brand new record coming out on Translation Law, so please check it out. It took some time on a Saturday night of all nights to get together at their practice space and hang out with me. We talked about a bunch of different stuff, the new record, recording process, sort of a revolving door of members and a variety of different influences, such as our mutual favorite band, King Crimson. If you enjoy the show, I urge you to subscribe and tell all of your friends about it. New episodes on every Tuesday. This is all part of the Gimme Radio platform, which is the world's best streaming 24-7 source of heavy metal and extreme music. I also have a show on that channel, and it goes up twice a month on Fridays. So download the app, check it out. Now, on to the episode. So this room has got uh, quite a bit of history, this particular practice space that we're sitting in tonight. And um, I've, I've been in this room before. And uh, I think one time, Chris, you were involved in this because you used to sing in Argonauts, right? That is true, yeah. yeah. I was one of the 80 singers in New Jersey who uh, did vocals for Argonauts and Virginia. Yeah, because I was like, uh, originally it was Dimitri from, uh, from Dillinger was the first singer. yeah. And then there was a period of time when you were. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was driving back from Texas, uh, I was texting with Dave. And he's like, "Where I'm in New Jersey. If uh, you are anywhere nearby, I should swing by and hang out. And I think you were here. Yeah, I think that <laughs> that was probably when I was in the band. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think it was Argonauts, and then they changed the name to glorious gone when yep. harrison from Cyopus was in it right and then eventually river black when mike was in it but yeah that it was weird too because i had recorded dimitri like like when they did their original demo with dimitri i was the one recording it oh okay um and that was actually part of how i wound up doing vocals for them for a while was because i had the recordings uh-huh so uh when dimitri left i was like fuck it let me try recording some stuff over this and i sent them a recording of it that's cheating. Hey man, I I see that there. I <laughs> see that as grasping an opportunity. That's true. <laughs> Isn't that how you became the second guitar player of East of the Wall though? Because uh, the band had uh, so I recorded the original East of the Wall like four song EP, and then I gave him like did I give you the Pro Tools sessions or did you just have like the final audio? Yeah, it was released, and I just took the CD and I was like, I'm gonna record some additional parts over this and see if. And when the rest of the band is drunk, I'm gonna throw it on and play it for them, and be like, "Here's here's what your songs could sound like if you have had an additional guitarist." And they they went for it. So, so this is a nice segue into this. First of all, this region of New Jersey, which seems to be like the kind of shred capital of the uh, East Coast. This this region of Jersey and maybe Rochester, New York, is like I think per capita has the most like sick players of extreme music you know metal whatever yeah i mean especially if you count brooklyn in there too i'm but <laughs> why are we, why are we going to count brooklyn yeah, i don't know because like this was me and kralis are in brooklyn okay well all right but mick 
though is not a uh, he's from like the dc area or actually no wait home yeah. mick is from connecticut originally yeah well i mean disrhythmia originally from philly that's what i'm saying yeah. these and we're talking about homegrown talent right okay here. yeah then that's fair yeah because yeah, like, no York, one is from brooklyn that's correct yeah. it's a <laughs> no co- one a collection no one a collection of carpet baggers i'm from brooklyn i was born there no you weren't were you? I was born in at Methodist Hospital in Brooklyn. I lived there. I lived in Brooklyn for two weeks, and then we moved to the, to the island. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I th- I thought you were always in. You were from Long Island, right? And then Conway was from Staten Island. Conway, your old guitar player. Right. Correct. Okay. You have to remember to grab the microphone for me before you talk. I'll I'll, I'll direct you guys. <laughs> you know, we're we're uh, we're out here in the field, doing this thing. Uh, you know, ultra guerrilla style. Um, out here in. Technically, this is uh, is this Hazlitt or key, uh, Keyport? Yeah, Keyport. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, but yeah. So what you're saying? Um, yeah, I feel like especially in this area, once you hit like your late 30s, early 40s, like everyone in this band is pretty much. Um, everyone who's still serious about music is like a community of I feel like 30 or 40 people by this point, and everyone else quit. So I feel like I literally know every musician in New Jersey by this point. Now that also leads into the sort of checkered past that East of the Wall has, as far as like, you know, and and believe me, from my perspective, I've also dealt with my share of lineup changes. You know, now I'm actually here because I have practice out here in New Jersey with the New Jersey lineup of tunes, so I understand. But East of the Wall started how long ago? Did you guys form? I believe it was 2005 when Brett, Mike, and Jeff formed the band. Those are three ni- names that are no longer actually in the band. So it's almost like a napalm death kind of thing. Yeah, basically. Um, it, yeah, they um, except at least the first two napalm death releases were eventually put together as one record. So um, uh, Shane was on half of that, even though they were two releases separately. Where I mean, I guess technically I recorded the first Deuce of the Wall EP, and I played literally ten to twelve seconds of drums on it. So I guess that counts. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing is... So the the only reason why um, it wasn't even more ridiculous is that the whole band was an offshoot of a previous band that Matt and I, plus um, Brett, the founding bassist, um, who's now in Revocation and a bunch of other bands, and then Mike, the original drummer, um, were all in this band called The Postman Syndrome, which was like 96 to 2000... What, five? I think 2004, 2005, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, the last show, yeah, it was 2005. Um and then when that band broke up, it um uh we kind of split into two different bands. One of them was called Day Without Dawn, which eventually became Biclops, and then one of them was East of the Wall. And then um so neither Matt and I were founding members of East of the Wall, but we all kind of were offshoots of a previous band and then we all kind of like congealed back into one like blob again. It was destiny. Yeah, it was like you guys are all kind of part of like this collective consciousness of musicians that existed at the same time in a variety of different bands. And uh, I mean, if I might be so bold to say that there is sort of a stylistic similarity, not directly, but I think a vague stylistic similarity between all these bands. Care to expand on that? Sure. I mean, the two of us have been literally playing together since high school. I think it was 90. 495 probably yeah march of 1995 um i walked in and actually that was also with the original east of the wall drummer too true i walked into a uh, high school band and he was playing i think you're playing milk from anthrax 
Yeah. And I was uh, like, well, technically, it was smoke from SOD. Right. Although I think both of us first heard it on the Killer Bees <laughs> Anthrax record. And I'm like, I'm like, I know that song. And he looks at me, he's like, you're a dork. And here we are. So I, I think, yeah, we all influence, influence each other. I know when I joined uh, East of the Wall originally and Jeff was the guitarist, um, he was playing stuff like I had not played before. And I learned literally from him how to play a different style of, of guitar. And I, I think that's the way... I've never taken formal guitar lessons, but I learn from the people I play with. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, everybody does that in some way. And it, when you sort of have a little bit of an incestuous thing going on where, where everybody's, like, playing with, with different versions of each other, um, you're going to have a little bit of that, which I think is cool. Um, I don't... Yeah, but obviously, I mean, you mentioned the SOD track. You guys obviously listen to more than, than Crossover, you know what I mean? So, like, what kind of uh you know king crimson that comes to mind yeah well i mean it, it's weird because like as you know like matt was saying we kind of learned how to play guitar in park by like showing each other a bunch of stuff since literally high school um but then also that was over the span of all of our taste changing from like you know back in those days i mean it was a lot of like thrash metal early death metal like some punk stuff and you know then getting into like more like space rock kind of stuff and then you know like 70s prog stuff and like old game soundtracks and like some hip-hop here and there and eventually yeah some jazz stuff and eventually kind of everything i think what was what was cool i don't know i guess this is 20 years ago at this point in high school it's like I guess we weren't listening to the radio that much, but we were discovering kind of the same kind of music at the same time as each other instead of as at the same time as, I guess, the nation. Right. Um, uh, like like you said, King Crimson, like all of a sudden someone's like, yo, have you heard Red? Check out Red. And like all everyone's listening to Red and, and everybody's really into it. And, and you're kind of like learning about this thing that's existed for a long time but you just didn't have access to it and you didn't know about it and now everybody's into it and it was a really i mean it was a really good time it's funny that like, red is like that seems to be the record by them that a lot of people reference you know if you talk to a lot of different people that are playing extreme music or metal you know i would think like the uh intellectually i would think that maybe the adrian Ballou stuff like you know beat discipline three of a perfect pair because the, the playing on that's like so fucking crazy that that might be the record that informs a lot of people who are playing like technical fast music, but a lot of you'd be surprised. You mentioned Red, and everyone that to me is more of a subdued record in a lot of ways. Definitely, but it's not, it's not their flashiest. Yeah, um, but it just I don't know. It resonates for me. Um, it's my favorite Crimson record, probably. I hadn't heard it in a while. I lost my copy, and so I I lost it a long time ago. So I never had it digitally, and then. Um, someone mentioned it a couple a couple months ago. I think it was Eric Niffler who um, he's done a lot of the art on our on our records. And I was like, "Yo, can you send me that?" And he sent it to me. And it was my dog had just died. Oh, and I don't know. Um, Fallen Angel was like, "Oh yeah." It just <laughs> it really hit me to listen to that for the first time in a long time. Um, it was <laughs> it was no, nah, that's a, that's emotional. an emotional song, yeah. man. Yeah, I I think that. Uh... It's especially weird because really it's just a five-track record. And one of the songs, um, like the fourth one, everyone skips. So it's really just four songs. But um, but it all, it, it's it's fun. Besides the one, one song you skip, it's a really consistent record. Um, and uh, I think that if the Baloo, the 80s Baloo era would have just been discipline, 
it would have been remembered better. Yeah. Um, but like, because you know, there there was a trio uh, that ended with Red. You know, um, uh, Lark's Tongues, and then Starless, and then Red, and then there was you know the Discipline, Beat, and Through the Perfect. Um, but I think that the other two records from the John Wedden trilogy, um, although not as good as Red, are still really good records and hold up better than the other two Blue records, where you could tell they like like Robert Fripp was just like, no, we're going to play this. And Adrian Ballou was just like, okay, I'll write something over it. And then they, they, uh, uh, you could hear the band kind of like tiring themselves out and falling apart by the third record. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that because those later two don't hold up as well, um, even though they have a couple of really good songs on them, um, that might be part of why Red is also just Red's the, the best record um <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan of john wetton's voice too i think i think that's a big part yeah. of it. like adrian blue is a really good singer but on some level he's also more of an acquired taste yeah definitely. Um, like technically he's really good but his voice is like i like his voice um but i feel like john wetton just has like that voice also he, he is similar his voice is also a little bit similar to greg lake too who was on the original you know Court of the Crimson King, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, although I wonder how much of that is just that it was that era. Like, you know, if you listen to John Wedden sing in the 80s, he sounds a little more 80s'd out. Um, right. and, oh, uh, in Asia, you mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the whole record's pretty 80s'd out. Yeah, um, so, uh, you know, because, like, all of those records came out so quickly. Like, um, uh, Court of the Crimson King was what, 69? I think so, yeah. And then Red was 74. So they did four or five records in, be- four or five records in between those. Yeah, because yeah, cause you always forget about uh, the one with uh, Boz Burrow on it. From- I don't forget about that. I listened to that the other day. Um, yeah. Islands? No, li- not Lizard. No, yeah, so li- Liz- Lizard was the third. <laughs> no, th- so that's the other guy. That's the, the with, guy. Um, uh, what's his name from Yes, right? Yeah, John Anderson. Yeah, he yeah. he just did the one guest song. Yeah, but no, but they got the the Cadence and Cascade guy yeah, to sing yeah. on. Yeah, no, but I'm talking about after that when they had another singer. Oh, I don't. I yeah, that. see, you did forget about it. Um, yeah, that was um, <laughs> ba- his name's like Boz Burrow, I think he was in like Bad Company or some shit. Yeah, so yeah, they did seven records between '69 and '74. Can you imagine putting out that kind of volume of of music? I wish. I mean, like, I feel like you know what? It's in my head. Um, I could if I had the time. Like if I could just focus on music, I would make it happen somehow. I would love to do that. What blows me away about the '70s in general and the late '60s is stuff like that, where like a band could put out like seven records in like five years or something. And this, you know, I think that these days record companies would probably not be on board with some sort of schedule like that. You know, but back then it was like this. You know redlining just everything maxed out pushing forward yeah man let's get it out and that's like something that like would be pretty cool i think these days if there were bands that people cared about that actually were putting out records like two records a year or something you know like black flag you put out records like every year two two records one year you know but i think a lot of it probably has to do with um obviously the industry has changed dramatically um but also recording technology the change there has probably led to a lot of that. Um, you know, you can be, you can, every, everything can be perfect now. So you, you take the time to be perfect now. But if you go back and listen to some of those early King Crimson records, you hear like some, you hear faults and that's, that's cool too. Um, and, and it's like, and obviously they did more of just like one take or two take recordings. 
Um, and so you could, you just, you spend the time writing it and then you record it in a day or two instead of like we just did over two years. <laughs> so now who is in the band? Who's the, what's the, the current lineup of East of the Wall? Everyone left in New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's still, um, uh, uh, everyone on the last record except, uh, our, uh, old, um, guitar player, uh, Ray, has left and now um we did the record basically as a four piece and then like right when we were finishing up um we got the, our new guitar player matt um not to be confused with this matt who um was in this band a fucking elephant that we used to play a lot of shows with back in the day so um yeah we, it, it was cool though doing it as a four piece because we got to kind of um space stuff out a little bit more not cr- like one less um uh no matter how selfless you try to be, you still have five people that are, you know, oh, I got an idea, let me throw something in, as opposed to four. So it, it, we did wind up having a little bit more breathing room where we could, like, slowly fill in the gaps, which was cool. Now, Ray is a pretty, uh, you know, incredible guitar player. Yes, far better than either of us. Yeah, I mean, he's, like, having, like, you know, someone they write articles about in your band, basically. You know, so yep. did he contribute at all to this record and writing? Sort of. Um, he does, he has writing credits on this this record. We yeah, because I saw his name in the in the notes. I think that a I was couple of the songs we wrote um, with him when he was. It was like maybe the last few months. Yeah, it's complicated. So yeah, there's one song that he technically has writing credits on, where um, we don't actually use any of the riffs that he wrote, but we have a couple parts that we wrote because of what he wrote or like on top of what he wrote um and you know we structured the whole thing very much with him so it it was kind of a weird thing where his spirit is there There yeah basically yeah so um and then and there were two other songs on this record i don't think lean holder counts because we didn't use any of the riffs that we wrote with him oh i don't even even remember yeah because lean holder had that whole like we basically wrote a song like two-thirds of a song and then we came up with a couple of the riffs that we wound up using. Batman. Yeah, bat- all the Batman stuff. We had all these, all the riffs went, dun, dun, like every riff did that, so we called it Batman for a while. Um, so yeah, we had like three minutes worth of music that in theory was part of the same song, but then we ditched all of it. And then what the song wound up becoming was like one riff that we said, maybe this could go with that. And then we just did its own thing. But yeah, so... Um, but. Uh, Clapping on the one, ones and threes and fast bang pooper dupe. We wrote when he. I'm, we're so sorry for that song title. Uh, we wrote when Ray was in the band, but um, Ray, you know, used to live in Maine. I didn't know that. Yeah, he didn't mo- like all of Redaction Artifacts. He was in Maine, so it was weird. He was in the band. We wrote almost the entire thing with him, but he wasn't always in the rehearsal space. So, um, a, like two of the songs on that record. Uh, he were based on his riffs and the rest like he would just like at home write a bunch of parts on top or when he was down. So this record, I think he wound up moving to New Jersey um, after we wrote Clapping on the Ones and Threes and then when we wrote Tell Them I'm Sorry, which is a song that he has credits on and then um, Fast Bang Pooper Doop. But for Pooper Doop, 
um, he never wrote parts to it um, because it was um, like a lot of it was written when he wasn't here and or he, he might have written a couple things that we didn't get used I don't remember but he, that was like he wrote a couple harmonies that didn't wind up getting used whereas tell them I'm sorry it was like okay we took like serious ideas that we developed with him now Ray, how do you pronounce Ray's last name Suhi Sui. Sui. Okay. Now, for anyone out there, I think. Uh, so that's what I mean. You know, I, I phonetically, it's like Suhi. Yeah. I guess Ray is um, currently in uh, Six Feet Under and uh, Cannabis Corpse, and you could, and he's also involved in some crazy like jazzy sort of yeah, stuff like a too. Couple, like yeah, he because um, he he when he's home he teaches lessons um, at a place with a bunch of other. So I feel like a lot of his projects are like musicians that he works with. Um, at that place, or musicians he's met for that place. So he's always just like putting together jazz groups and shit like that. Yeah, so, and then he has like his solo shred projects. Yeah. He's got that um, more like electronic thing with uh, what's that called? I don't think I know. With um, uh, Steve Hanushowski. I don't know. Okay, well he has. <laughs> <laughs> it starts with a G. I forget how it's pronounced though. So anyone out there to play his guitar is listening to this. Look up Ray Sui S U. H-Y. Yes. Right. Incredible guitar player. Peripherally involved in this record by East, in the, East of the Wall. That will be accurate, right? Peripherally yes. involved, yeah. involved. Okay, great. So is this why it took two years to make this album? All this? I don't... No. I'm going to say no. I think there are a lot of factors. And um, a lot of it is maybe why we've had lineup changes and so much change over the years. Um, but this is not... It, it's not a day job for of course us. and so it, i think we all sort of you know make sacrifices in our life for this make sacrifices in this for our lives um and i think that a lot of the times the two those two sets of sacrifices don't jive and that's where you know lineup changes end up happening yeah um in, in the last few years so i've had i have three kids now um two of which have been over the last two years two or three years so that is a a big part of it. I really try to not um, step away completely when when I'm having babies, but it, it's it, it's tough. Yeah, it's the demands of everyday life yeah. and family and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, as Chris mentioned, so his wife has been um, going to school on a tropical island. Tropical um, island for yeah, Saint Kitts. <laughs> Where do you study? Uh, what kind of material would you study out on a tropical island like that? Uh, sh- uh, it's veterinary school. Oh, yeah. So there, there's only so many vet, vet, veterinary schools. It's um, so uh, the one she got into was in St. Kitts. Uh, so yeah, that that's been rough. That's been a little over two years that she's been there, and uh, you know she'll come home for a few weeks every four months, and every four months I'll go down there for um, like a week or two. So, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, two months, you know, like, you know, we'll go two or so months and then she'll be up here. And then a, cu- a couple months later, I'll go down there and then we crisscross. So she's finally going to be back in the States. And yeah, so, yeah, we've had a lot of stuff going on. Well, I mean, I think that the, the, the reason this album took a little longer was two different property related things. One, we just took longer writing it. Um, we started it like right when Redaction Artifacts was complete, which was, um, the album came out what 2013 uh so um i think by then we already started writing clapping on the ones and threes and then um we finished writing the record in uh spring of 2017 um but then uh we finished recording it 
a year later um and then you know um and then mixing and then mastering and then vinyl takes like eight years to come out because you know the record pressing plants are backed up so long so um yeah but i I think that uh compositionally it took a little bit longer and i think some of that was um some lineup change stuff um uh you know we wound up retooling a bunch of things planning planning some things but we also write very complicated songs. That you do. Just take a long I can time. vouch for that for sure, man. Um, I, we were talking about we we basically ditched like a half a song halfway through the writing process because it just you know it wasn't really it it wasn't what we felt it needed to be, and so that sets you back like that's a few months right there that that are deleted from your your band life. Um, and that wasn't the only son- thing that we ditched. What else did we ditch? Remind um, me. Not, I don't think there were any full things like that. There were definitely like a riff or two from each song that I'm sure we did. I know that clapping had a few things that we got rid of. I've got recordings of like riffs. You'll be you'll be surprised. I can pull up some rehearsal sessions and it's like, oh that. Um, there's one or two I can think of off the top of my head, but I'm not gonna hum them because it'll sound completely ridiculous. <laughs> as far as recording goes, um, you guys seem to be like a hands-on sort of outfit here. Now, do you yeah, also... We, we, we all play with hands. It's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Literally a hands-on yeah, outfit. Yeah, yeah. So do you um, also in, involve yourselves you know, intimately with the recording process? Do you do any of that yourself, or do you do it all in a different in a studio or a little bit of both? Uh, yeah, so we recorded almost the whole thing ourselves. Um, we did the drums at a studio called Portrait Recording Studios, um, where we've been there a bunch now. They just have um, a really fantastic sounding drum room. Um, I feel like if you're going to record on your own, there's a lot you can get away with in, uh, in like a bedroom or an untreated space or this rehearsal room. But the one thing you just, you can't fake still is a good drum room. Absolutely. Um, and I would rather have a good drummer in a good sounding room with really mediocre gear than, you know, all the fanciest preamps and microphones in a, in a, just like a room with carpet and drywall. I mean, well, Portrait also has good sounding gear, but that's besides the point. So, uh, yeah, we did the drums there, um, but then everything else was done at my house. Um, just to, like, um, I had, I had the, the amp for the distorted guitars mic'd up for four months. And every time my cats walked past the microphone, I gave them a dirty look. And I was like, you better not move that goddamn microphone. <laughs> we should mention, he turned his bedroom into into the amp room while his wife was not living in the States at the moment. So. Yeah, so I, I sleep with the amps. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, um, uh, well, the the bass was actually trapped, uh, trapped at our rehearsal room. Trapped, yeah, it was trapped in our rehearsal room um, because uh, – I I'm in a two-story house and I couldn't and there's just no way to control the volume of a bass amp. So I just like, you know, cranked both of those Ampeg A10s at one time and just kind of went one was clean and one was distorted. But yeah, for the clean, for the distorted guitars, um we we recorded them at a surprisingly quiet volume. I have this thing called a uh, Fryette uh would you know, it used to be VHT, I know they're called Fryette. Um uh power station which is it's like a load box yeah it's like a break puts an artificial load on the head so it gives the illusion of you know right pushing it the same sort of power output but it's a resistance that's actually absorbing instead of a cabinet right right but it works different than other attenuators because most other attenuators just put resistance there um but then you're still it's still the one power amp driving it just with more resistance so it works harder Mm -hmm. this actually works a little differently it's more like um the kind of load box that you would get in like a cab sim where it it absorbs 100 percent of the load of the head 
okay. converts it to line level, then sends it through a lower wattage second power amp. Um, so yeah, the whole amp is just like brought down to line level and then reamped um, with like a 50 watt power section instead of 100. So yeah, you can get the head like like cranked and then mic it up again. Um, I mean, it has some tone trade offs because you're going through a different power. You're still using your original power amp, but then you're using this other separate power amp. But overall, like the um, the main amplifier on the record was a Mesa Boogie Royal Atlantic for all the distortion tones. And that has an attenuator, but we shot it out. We were like, all right, let's try just the amp straight to the cab with the built-in attenuator. And then we shot it out, no attenuator, and just using the Fryette, um to, to, to ramp it with a lower wattage. And that won the shootout. It just was clearer and brighter. It didn't lose as much high end. And that shootout itself took weeks because, you know, you, you rent you rent studio for a couple weeks or whatever and you get that done in three or four hours or half a day or whatever but when you're using your rehearsal time for that you know evenings nights whatever shooting stuff out just that that's that's what you that what you've accomplished for a week or two and that and then you're ready to record guitars yeah i mean so it had pros and that whole process had pros and cons i think ultimately we wound up with maybe a better product because i think a lot of our a lot of our records We've worked with some really talented recording engineers and some and mixing engineers, but there's a lot of shit going on. Um, and sometimes, no matter how good you are, if you don't have hindsight, it uh, you don't realize what it needed. So I mean, there was some stuff where we sat on it for like a week, and we we're like, actually, we think I think this tone sounds. So yeah, like the the chord distortion tone was originally just the Royal Atlantic. And then we realized it was lacking some mid-range, so we brought in. Matt also has a Mesa Boogie 525, um, so it's it's a Mark V, but it's um, like the 25 watt version. So um, and the power tubes in there are like Vox style power tubes, so okay. more mid-rangey. And we brought that in on a lower gain setting and just blended it in like 20% of the tone, and that gave us the mid-range that we needed. So the, all that, and you know, we didn't realize that until like a week and a half in. So that's see, like little details like that. That's like when you're when you're on like the clock basically when you enter a studio yep. scenario you can't really go into that deep of experimentation you know and that's do you so this whole thing is very po a positive way of recording then except for the fact that it takes forever <laughs> but besides that yeah it's like if there's some way we could get the benefit of the hindsight while still condensing the process for the next recording that's going to be kind of the goal is like hey how can we get all the benefits of this but not spent a year recording it so how does that work with uh translation loss when they want like a record from you do they like all right in the next 12 to 14 months <laughs> we'd like to have an album to to put out by you guys well i thankfully i don't think they're waiting on hit singles for uh, from us uh, <laughs> um you know what i don't even know yeah so <laughs> Basically, yeah. I mean, one like they knew that you know we're like you know we're not you know like, touring like we used to be, and uh, and that we were just we were going to deliver from a record eventually. And basically, drew from translation loss just every like eight months. Hey, man, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> I hear you're working on a record. Any um, how's how's that going? Hey, man. <laughs> so <laughs> you got a record? And eventually, we, and then even when I told him, hey, we're in the middle of recording it, he was like. All right, so you got a record, and then it was like a year later. No, still, still recording it. Okay, no, it's it's all recorded now. We're just uh, waiting for it to be mixed. And so even the like you know, um, so Scott Evans uh, was our mixing engineer on it. He's uh, he plays guitar in the in the band Kowloon Walled City, um, and he has a place called Annie Sleep, um, uh, out in uh, Oakland, and 
this isn't his day like core day job either you know like he does all that shit like as a labor of love after hours and on weekends and um so and but he's also really good so he's really backed up so exactly yeah, yeah. you ba- you send him a record and you know you're waiting three months before he can even get around to it you know um so uh but uh we're i was really psyched that we sent it to him because we we thought that the mixes that i had like the working mixes were good and then we got Scott's mixes back, and we're like, "Oh, okay." Yeah. And I, I do have to say, um, I, we've worked like Chris said, we've worked with some really talented engineers in the past. Um, Scott, I, he took this. I think he took it personally. It was like, I, I think he was trying to get as much out, as much juice out of this recording as as we were. And I, I'd see his notes back to us, and I'd see his notes to uh, Brad, uh, the mastering engineer, who also did an awesome job. And and I'm like, wow, these guys are like they are working for us. They want to work not for us for this project. They yeah. want this to sound as awesome as possible. And that was like that was really really great. Yeah. So now that it's all done, are you happy with the way the recording turned out? Yeah, I mean, it's it, there's always that period <laughs> where you think like, oh, this is our best one and our best like you know, it's the best songs, the best recording. Um, we've had this for a while now, and I still feel me. I mean, the band has covered so much grounds that like, you know, it, it, it's. I I definitely feel like of the records I've been on, you know, I wasn't on Farmer's Almanac, which was our first record, um, but um, for the other three after that, and then this one. Uh, I definitely am happiest with this one. It's um, I, I there's nothing that I'm going back afterwards and going like, shit. Like if we just like would have realized this at the time, I would have you know a couple like little minor things. But overall, um, this is the first one where I'm like, okay, this is like a thing I'm really happy to present to people. Hands down. Um, even. Even now, you know, we, we've mixed this thing months ago. I still get chills listening to, to certain parts of it. I think it's by far the... Well, well you know, you had that fever for a while. That's true. <laughs> um, I think it is the best sounding um, and just best executed um, collection of, of music that we've, we've put out. Now, the other question I have is, like, because you guys play pretty technical music, and do you get so dialed in and focused about performances that sometimes you end up like really obsessing over certain lines and that becomes like this kind of like showstopper in the recording process i don't i don't think so i think we're able to actually roll with that somewhat um if i'm and i do this a lot of my own projects that when i record at home if i am really unable to get something and i've like you know I've, i've put the time into to making it what i think i want it to be um I'll find I'll find another way to execute. I don't I, I don't I don't think that there's a like this un untouchable perfect um, unassailable like ideal riff that has to be played this this way. Like if I can get it to that, I will do what I can to get it there. But I think I could probably also find another way to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. Also, so we we do roll with it, and I think like we'll we'll adjust things if we're like eh, you know, why are we trying to to get this down when this also could be really cool instead if we do it this way and probably a lot easier too um especially when we're thinking about vocals um i don't i don't sing live at all because i'm just 
I'm terrible at singing and playing at the same time. It's just not something I ever focused on. It's a hard thing to do, definitely. Yeah, it's re- it's really hard, and you have to put the time into it. And I always just decided, you know what? I rather put the time that I have into the guitar alone. Um, so I'm I'm willing to for myself if I ever do vocals, I I am willing to simplify. And Greg, who does the almost all of the vocals, um, with the exception of Chris's screams, he you know we're usually trying to find ways to make sure that what he's playing he can sing live because a lot of the stuff is just like you're playing on totally different beats from where the the vocals fall um the the melody lines are going in different directions there's no there's, the tonic isn't in the chord that you're playing <laughs> See, it's hard so we're, we tr- that's not the that's not um rule one it's not the first thing on the agenda but if we need to work through that we will to make sure that we can actually execute live what we're what we're doing um i i think also too with us um you know it's funny when um when matt was learning these songs the other matt um that just joined the band um or when you know um when when we've done some tours and had like some fill-in guitar players it's funny because you know they because like the music has some odd time signatures or or whatever they assume that oh this is going to be technical stuff this is probably hard to play and then they start learning the songs, and it's like almost nothing on this record is really that hard. I mean, it's hard for me to play sometimes because I'm not a shredder or anything. But um, we, ever, whenever um, anyone else has been learning these songs, uh, and they're like, "Oh, this part's this part's really tricky," I was like, "That's because you're not playing it in the <laughs> this way. Try like making this an open note, and then this here, and pull off to this." And they're like, "Oh." Um, yeah, it's weird. We, because, you know, we play quote unquote prog rock because, you know, we've got some odd time signatures, um, or like some of our stuff's like kind of atonal here and there. We've kind of gotten lumped in with bands that are much more technical than us and can play like way more intricate things than us. And we've always kind of, we, like, I've always thought of progressive rock not as, hard music but as adventurous music and experimental music and that's always and maybe that gets to like the whole to bring things full full circle maybe that gets uh back to the whole um king crimson red versus discipline thing is really from day one of this band or the like original band that matt and i formed that this came out of the idea wasn't to play challenging music the idea was to play you know, music that didn't sound like other things or, like, kept my short attention span, like, interested or, um, you know, just, like, not get bored ever, never get bored. Uh, I would like to caveat that with um, when, when we say, prob- you know, we are, are, are maybe not as good as it as it seems. Um, I think <laughs> I a- think Seth is. I, you know, he, he just, like, he can play things that other people just can't Well, that, that's the guy who has to be good is the drummer, man. Yeah. Like, you, I mean, I know. I just, you know, I, I always try to make myself appear better by having great drummers in the band so I, I can relate. <laughs> um, you, you can get away with, like, as, as if you have a really good drummer, that's, you know, I would, I would rather hear everyone else be mediocre and the drummer be amazing than vice versa. Yeah. The other thing is, um, I think Ray, when, you know, he, when he was in, for a few years um, and releasing redaction artifacts with him on it um, that also I think bolstered that that sort of image as of a, a, a more progressive because I mean he can play that guy can play anything you put in front of him forward backward upside down um, and, and he did he displayed a lot of that on redaction artifacts as well if 
maybe I'm giving away a secret here, but if you listen to the new record <clears throat> to NP Complete um, and then compare it to Red Action Artifacts, you're not going to find, you know, solos and leads and, and crazy arpeggios like you did on, on Redaction Artifacts. And that's because Ray's not there. I can't do that stuff. But I know what I can do when I try and um, try and capitalize on it, really, to make it make it shine as much as I can. Do you guys like horror movies at all? Not me. I So I had to leave the Care Bear movies when I, when I was a kid because I was too scared. So not me. Uh, I, uh, if I'm with a bunch of people... I like a good like B horror movie okay. for the fun of it, um, and on my own like I'm I I don't I usually am not that into them. But when you have one that um, is like out there and really does something different, that, so like people have been recommending like Hereditary. Oh yeah, I was yeah. like okay, like that good seems one. like the kind of movie I'd be into. Right. Well, the reason I bring that up is we were talking about Crimson, right? Mm -hmm. There's a movie called Mandy, which is a you know, horror right, action yeah. crazy movie by a director named Panos Cosmatos mm -hmm. who did a mo another film called uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow which is a out there film yeah both and, of those I've been meaning to check out for a while oh man you, there, you'll be pleasantly surprised in the beginning of Mandy because Starless by uh, King Crimson is the sort of title sequence song huh. and it's a perfect uh, it just it soon as like I, I, were, I was already predisposed to like the movie but when I heard the beginning of that song, I was like, oh, my God, they're using this one of my favorite King Crimson songs. And then the rest of the film sort of has the same sort of vibe as the entire Red album, which is kind of cool. And also, there's like a red tinge to the whole movie. So I, I want to talk to the director and be like, hey, do you like King Crimson? Well, obviously, you like them. <laughs> but what's the deal? How come everything looks red? And you have the song from, from Red. Yeah. Um, you're you're kind of selling me on it a little bit, but I I do want to um, I want to mention that there was an evil Care Bear in that movie, so okay. it was kind of scary. But I, <laughs> you're giving a lot of disclaimers to stuff. I just want to let you know. I, it's part of my part of my day job, but <laughs> I wouldn't say that Ma Mandy wasn't very horrific. It was um, you know there was some violence in it, but it wasn't necessary. It was more of an action film in some ways. It's like an action revenge movie. I, I got to tell you, I I saw, I think I saw it like on a movie marquee, and I just I assumed automatically that it was like a, a Mandy Moore movie or something. I had heard nothing, and I was like, oh, it's got to be a, that's got to be it. Probably. I just usually awesome. avoid movies with Nicolas Cage in it. Well, all right, in the last decade or so, yeah, but you know, he was in some great movies which I enjoyed. He was in Leaving Las Vegas, which I thought was amazing. He was in uh, Steve. Uh, um, George David yeah George Lynch's uh, it's David Lynch's uh, Wild at Heart he was great in that but generally he isn't in very good movies yeah. I agree uh, it's for whatever reason like I just really dislike Nicolas Cage uh, his acting um, like even um, like Adaptation is the one uh, movie by that screenwriter whose name I'm blanking on uh, that uh, just I don't know, something about putting Nicolas Cage in a movie makes me tense and not like it. If you want to really hate Nicolas Cage, you should check out uh, the uh, Werner Herzog remake or interpretation of Bad Lieutenant. It's called Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans. Features <laughs> Nicolas Cage as the main character in that. And you'll you'll see what levels of despair like he must have sunk to make that film <laughs> i will put that on the list <laughs> so um do you have any plans of like uh you know a release show or anything like that when this record comes out 
Yeah, uh, we're doing, um, well, we got a warm-up show coming up in Jersey uh, in late February at Brighton Bar. And then, um, yeah, there, uh, which is uh, Wednesday, February 27th. That's with the Sparager and Zvi. Zvi? Zvi. Uh, which is Ron from KO.S Band. Um, and then uh, we have two shows, hopefully, for the record release. Um, one is April 13th. Uh, does this podcast go up after Wednesday? I'm assuming it might. Yeah, okay. we don't know. We could. Okay. I can. It's whatever you want, man. <laughs> All right. it's, it's January right now. Yeah. Um, so uh, <laughs> yeah, the uh, April 13th uh, at uh, Kingsland is going to be um, in Brooklyn. Is going to be our uh, New York record release show, uh, and that's with also with Disparager and Marching Teeth, um, and I think one more band. And then um, we're working on a New Jersey record release show for that Sunday. Um, probably central jersey like asbury area hopefully with like hundreds of au and uh maybe, i think they call it hundreds of vow or hundreds of awe but it's like astronomic astronomical units or something oh. yeah it's like a it's like a sci-fi thing um so uh and uh maybe low light is playing that too and maybe someone else right on well thanks for uh taking time out and talking to us and uh, i look forward to checking you guys out when you guys play in brooklyn at that Kingsland show. Thank you for having us. Of course, man. Our pleasure. I would also like to thank you for having us. Yeah. More than him. <laughs> All right, so you mentioned the new Star Trek series. Yes, I did. Have you watched the new Voltron series? I was unaware of that. It is, I, like, I, fin- I finished this, they, they just released the last season, season eight. Okay, um, season eight. Yeah, they did eight seasons of it, and uh, I just finished it last week, and I don't feel the need to watch any more TV. Okay. Like it is, it f- has fulfilled me. Hmm. Interesting. I was like in a big Narcos thing for a while, you know. That I enjoyed that, and uh, I'm slogging my way through uh, Sabrina, the teenage witch. I know, right? Is that a, is that a remake or the original? Well, it, it's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original okay. that's like basically geared towards, uh, you know, eighteen to say twenty five year old girls, but. Me being the horror nerd that I am, I feel like I have to check it out. Anything that has to do with the occult or like Satan or witchcraft, I'm always in D- that. Didn't the Church of Satan actually sue them because uh, the statue of Baphomet that they had there was like exactly the one from the church? Yeah, you know, you know what's interesting about the Church of Satan's or the Temple of Satan's, there's, there's a distinction because the Church of Satan is Anton LaVey and the Temple is this organization. It's a more modern organization. Mm-hmm. I found it interesting that their version of Baphomet has, doesn't have the boobs like the original one. Huh. It's, and you know, it's not really like Baphomet's not really a satanic symbol. Mm-hmm. It's a, actually it's, um, I can't, uh, Alephus Levi. He's like a Hebrew, uh, cleric from like thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. He came up with that image and it was, to do with the universal balance hence male and female attributes to the baphomet it had nothing to do with satan okay now the temple of satan's version of baphomet is like a, a very male thing it's a very uh you know sort of male patriarch uh, matriarch patriot i have to cut this out <laughs> it's a very male patriarchal image so I found that interesting because their their whole shtick is like about, you know, this kind of progressive thoughts and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I wonder if they were just like market testing it, and they were just like, yeah, we're getting we're getting negative reactions from the boobs on it. We've we've got to like go more traditional. 
You know, it's funny. My the rock band that I play in, we've we've uh, played two two functions that the Temple of Satan have uh, have sponsored, and they're pretty pretty uh, amusing, actually. Did any of them have boobs? Right? Oh, there's plenty of boobs there, definitely. Okay. But uh, you should just write them a letter, just being like, you know, like bring it back, man. We want the original Baphomet. We want Baphomet classic. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. You've been listening to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. We'll be back next week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio via web iOS, or Android for one of the best metal communities in the world. Exclusive interviews and merch and so much more. If I had to pick Star Trek, I'd probably Deep Space Nine. But, I mean, it's kind of, you kind of had to be there at the time, which I half was. Uh, a lot of it is kind of bad, even the ones that are good, or like, you have to skip every other episode. Because I just, just now, actually, discovered that there was an existing, like, a new Star Trek. It's already on season two, I think. Yeah, because you can't, it's behind a paywall um, of a CBS broadcasting show. Uh, ch- like, uh, well, not show. Um, uh, program. So you have to have like a like an app or something like that to yeah. watch it. Okay. Um, so the only reason I was able to see it was because that's only how it works in the U.S. But my wife is in St. Kitts right now at vet school, and I was down there. And then internationally, like all kinds of shit is on Netflix uh, outside the U.S. Um, like Better Call Saul um, is just like. It premieres on Netflix. Like, oh so really? You, yeah. You, if you're if you're out of the country, you can watch it. You can-